Hey, welcome to New Hope Underground. And we are back with the Ruth series. It's the last one, 404. We look at Ruth chapter 4. And Jonathan Roches is here. Hey, Darren. It's good to be with you, man. What's up, buddy? Oh, I'm excited to be on New Hope Underground. It's been a while since I've been here. It has. So welcome, because you you will be speaking on uh, Ruth 14. 14. Ruth 4. <laughs> Don't make this book even longer, Darren. <laughs> Ten I know, extra we, we don't, chapters. People are like, please, no, four, not 14 weeks. <laughs> no. no, it's been fun, though. This is such a cool story here in the Old Testament. And it really uh, is. bringing yeah. it in to the last stretch, coming into a home plate here with chapter four. And uh, I tell you what, though, I got to be honest for just a second with you, Darren. This message has fought me a lot trying to figure out what I wanted to say with this message. And I think part of the reason for that is um, I, I was watching a, I'm, I'm a big fan of Tim Mackey and the Bible Project. Mm-hmm. So if anybody wants, like, I feel like that's a great place to start going deeper into learning about oh, yeah. how the Bible's constructed. Basic videos. And- yeah, all kind of cool videos. And he offers actual classes and things. I've taken a couple of those, which have been really insightful for me. But anyway, he was talking in one of the classes, I think it was, that I took. And he said, the Bible is a finely crafted piece of fine literature. And I think sometimes since like somebody like me that grew up in church and I had Bible story books, you know, with the little cartoons and stuff in it, since I was a very small child, we tend to think of it almost as childish, almost like an Aesop's fable. You know, here's the story and then here's the, here's the tortoise, here's the hare and here's the moral of the story, boys and girls. Yeah, always. And Ruth does not end with a, here's the moral of the story, boys and girls. I don't think much of the Bible does. Most of the Bible doesn't. And <laughs> yeah. that's because, and Tim Mackey made the argument, it's because it's good literature. You know, it's because it's a fine piece of literature where instead of saying, oh, here's the moral of the story, instead they set up the principle, then they show you the characters, and they just show you how their lives play out, whether they obeyed or whether they disobeyed. And it's up to us to really sit here with the Holy Spirit and try to figure out what are you trying to teach us with this piece of literature. And so... Yeah, and they weren't always necessarily trying to just get history across either. Correct. You know, they were they were putting their material together in such a way as to actually persuade people of something, to persuade the reader of how good God is or persuade the reader of, yeah, you know, right. what God has for us or what have you. And so as I kind of close out this Ruth series, I've been trying to figure out what is it that, uh, that Ruth as a whole, as a whole book is trying to get across to us and how do, as we close out this message series, what does that mean? And then how do we apply it? You know, using your Soma principles, what does it mean? How do we apply it? What does that What does that look like for us? So I have some ideas, but I'm actually excited to sit down with you and run them by you today. No, it's good. Make sure I'm not jumping too far off the deep end. Well, it's but. good. And I think we've hit, you know, the first three chapters, we've hit quite a bit of what oh, the yeah. themes are. Yes. And, you know, I think it's going to flow into what you're going to do today. Uh, if it's okay, I'll go ahead and read chapter four then, and then we'll get, get rolling. Let's do it. Okay. Now, Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken in the end of chapter three there, came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friends, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took 10 men of the elders of the, elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. 
Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. And if you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I will come after you. I come after you, he said. I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, Will the day you buy the field from the land of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance? Then the Redeemer said, Well, I cannot redeem it for myself. He backtracks really fast. <laughs> Lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times of Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the land from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Limelech and all that belonged to Kilion and to Malon. So Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in uh, Ephrathath and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now there was generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. And Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. I'm so glad you got to read all the names there. Wow. <laughs> Instead yeah. of me. I get to do it on Sunday. but uh, Just a few verses, but a lot of names. <laughs> a lot of names. A lot of names. You know, so Darren, when I was first starting to study this passage, trying to figure out what Sunday's sermon should look like, uh, at first, I wandered really, really, really deeply into this this courtroom scene. I've, I essentially see this as a courtroom scene yeah. between Boaz Ancient and the, yeah, yeah. the kinsman redeemer. They sat at a gate. We sit in a courtroom when we're de- deciding official business. But, they uh, do contracts. They do sandals. Exactly. Well, so no, that's part of the whole thing, too, because I started wondering, you know, Tyler Sturkey talked about it last Sunday's message in chapter three when he started talking about Leverite marriage and all those sorts of things. And I started going really deep down that rabbit hole. And uh, there's a lot of commentary both ways saying this was a Leverite marriage between Boaz and Ruth. Some people are saying, no, it wasn't. Uh, I tend to think it was because the sand, the sandal is one of those clues in Deuteronomy 25. When someone said, no, I don't want to participate in a Leverite marriage. 
it was the woman that was supposed to take his sandal, spit in his face, and it was supposed to be shame. And the guy's name actually in his tribe would then be the one whose sandal was removed for the rest of his life. He would be known as the guy that refused <laughs> to help out the, the yeah. widow. Shame, yeah. Yeah, it was shame. And it's interesting because that's another clue that I think makes it say, yes, it is Leverite marriage, is uh, Boaz doesn't refer to the guy by name. In fact, in the New English translation, um, they say that where it says, turn aside friend and sit down here, they actually translated that. Let me pull that up. He says, come here, what's your name? And I looked at the note for that, and it's literally in a Hebrew idiom meaning such and such, where (laughs) they're not wanting to publish the guy's name in the book. Right, yeah. Because he had the shame of not wanting to participate in the Leverite marriage. So anyway, so I started wandering down all of that sort of thing. It's so interesting because there's so many, when I've read so many conflicts, though, about how this is, like, for instance, why would that guy in the Redeemer kind of setting there's some questions to whether or not why that guy would even be why was it against his inheritance yes. this kind of thing i actually looked into that and i found one explanation that made some sense to me yeah. but again i feel like we're kind of wandering into no, an, an right. area Just, that's a little bit gray where i'm not going to stake my faith on any of these well, i things, think what's interesting know? i don't know about jonathan i think what's interesting is that it is cool to kind of go down the rabbit hole with all this stuff yeah oh yeah but in the end the author doesn't tell us yes Right. So that that gives you kind of a clue as to maybe some of his meaning uh, maybe doesn't trans it kind of transcends that. Right. That makes any sense. So the the ex- so I'll go down the rabbit hole just a little bit. Yeah, here. go ahead. Okay. That's what this podcast is about. So I'll go down the rabbit hole yeah. a little bit. This is and again, I can't I don't have time on Sunday to talk about all this. But the explanation that made the most sense to me was you had to think about how redemption of land worked back in that day. So somebody hits a hard time. They have to sell their land in order to make ends meet. And when you purchased land in Israel back in those days, and this is all found in Leviticus. I can't remember the chapter right off the top of my head. But there's all these redeemer laws about how when you would go and you'd buy this land from your relative, mm-hmm. right? Because he just he's bankrupt or whatever. Right. Um, you wouldn't buy it permanently. It was not your land permanently. Eventually, that land would go back to that guy during this time called Jubilee, right. which would happen about every 50 years. This The whole country would have this time of Jubilee where the land goes back to its original owners. And so that's really kind of a cool thing if you start thinking about it, because God set up a system for the Jewish people where every generation, once every 50 years, the new generation gets to take a shot at providing for themselves with the land. It's not like one right. guy is ever going to accumulate all of the land throughout all of Israel yeah, and so everybody works for him. It was God's way of keeping the rich people from just taking, taking over, over enslaving people. Exactly. Yeah. And so you wouldn't wind up having this disparity that just kept getting bigger and bigger. And let's say your dad messed it up. Let's say he could not handle his finances. Well, guess what? You were going to have your shot sometime. You know, at some point, Jubilee would roll around during your lifetime. You would have a shot to try to make this land work for you. Uh, so anyway, it's interesting because the guy is the, the kinsman redeemer that's not named is very interested in redeeming Elimelech's land. He wants to buy the land, but then as soon as he finds out Ruth is around, he goes, no, I'm not interested. And you start thinking about it and you go, okay, so he's going to have to take money out of his current estate. He's going to have to take cash and resources out of his current estate to purchase this land 
And he's all excited to do it because at first he thinks he's going to get to add on because Naomi has no heir. There's nobody to come take this when Jubilee rolls around. Ah. He's not going to lose it. Yeah. So he gets to add for one. This is like a once in a lifetime opportunity to grab this land, make your land bigger, and your kid is going to have a bigger farm because of it. Yeah. But now, but with Ruth, it will go. But with Ruth, that whole situation changes. So now all of a sudden the situation becomes one where you are taking assets and cash out of your own estate to fund another one Mm -hmm. that is not ever going to be able to pay you back. So now you've put this, uh, this first estate in a uh, compromised position to try to rescue this one. And you don't even get to keep the one that you rescued. And all of a sudden he goes, Oh no, I'm not, I'm not interested in that. Plus his wife's like, uh, uh-uh. uh. well, <laughs> exactly. I mean the whole, that whole thing, if I think about it too long, I just get a little bit weirded out. You know, yeah. you start putting names and faces to it. So it's like, okay, so if I die, my brother, and then you have to stop thinking about it because it just gets yeah. too strange. I don't think us quick. guys nowadays could handle a patriarchal society. <laughs> no. We wouldn't know what to do with that. <laughs> Absolutely not. But in the so, words of Monty Python, run away. Run right, away. right. So anyway, that was a really interesting rabbit hole for me. And then it kind of makes the sacrifice of Boaz that much more meaningful um, for us to kind of think. So he was willing to make that sacrifice, to to put his estate in a compromised position yeah, in order to help Ruth and Naomi when they really did not bring a whole lot to the table. It, it makes his it makes the actions of Boaz that much more significant. Well, it it when you shows how much he it. cares about his family too, you know, right? Just because he, like you said, he's not thinking of himself. Yeah, exactly. But where I um, where I decided to go because I feel like it was just that much more poignant, and this kind of leads to a pet theory of mine that I I want to run by you see what your see what your thoughts are. I started keying in a whole lot on verses thirteen through seventeen which is the part where uh, Ruth has a son and then the village women start talking to Naomi and saying, may the Lord be praised. He's given you a grandson today or gave gave you a guardian today. He's going to become famous. This Ruth that God gave you is better to you than seven sons. I think this, this paragraph really helps us key in on what I think could be one of the main points in the book of Ruth. And that is when you hold it in contrast to Ruth chapter one over at the beginning of the book. And so Ruth chapter one is all about Naomi's life coming totally unraveled. You know, everybody dies. She goes to Moab. Uh, Now all of a sudden you got three widows, Orpah or Oprah, however you want to say it, (laughs) you know, (laughs) stays in Moab. Ruth Mm -hmm. says, no, I'm coming home with you. And then there's this paragraph. I'm pulling it up on my computer now. It's verses 19 through 22. When they entered Bethlehem, the whole village was excited about their arrival. The women of the village. It's the only two places that the women of the village show up. And they're held in stark contrast to each other. Because in Ruth chapter 1, Naomi is saying something to the women of the village. And it's all about God. Which... Mm -hmm. There's God doesn't God is kind of silent throughout the whole book of Ruth. Like in a lot of other Old Testament stories, God is an active player. He's saying things. He's it's doing very, things. He is, he is active, but he's very subtle. I kind of brought that up in uh, Ruth two. Yeah, when it said just so happens, just she, so happens, yeah. right? And that's yeah. that's like like I feel like Ruth is making the book of Ruth is making its point 
with that subtlety, with those question marks. You you read through the book of Ruth and you're asking yourself, where is God in this story? Well, Naomi makes a statement about God in this paragraph with the village women in Ruth chapter one. And she says some things that are really interesting. She she replied to them, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. Why? Why, did, why are we supposed to call her Mara? Because the sovereign one has treated me very harshly. So she's talking about God there. I left here full, but the Lord has caused me to return empty handed. Why do you call me Naomi? Seeing that the Lord has opposed me and the sovereign one has caused me to suffer. Like she says four very harsh things about God in that paragraph. She says, God's treated me harshly. God's made me, God's stolen all this stuff from me. Basically, um, God has opposed me and God has caused me to suffer. That's rough. Like it's really raw and it's really, really rough. Um, and then, but then you hold that in contrast to what the village women say back to Naomi in Ruth chapter four. And they say, I'll just read it real quick here. May the Lord be praised because he has not left you without a guardian today. May he become famous in Israel. He will encourage you and provide you for you when you are old for your daughter-in-law who loves you has given him birth. She is better to you than seven sons. So all that stuff that you thought God took from you, Naomi, He's actually given you more. Mm-hmm. He's actually blessed you more. And so this is kind of my pet theory. It, you know, the book is called Ruth, but I almost feel like Naomi is the main character of this book. Oh yeah, I think so. Okay. I think I'm glad I'm not totally off the rocker on this one. No, I've, I'd even go as far to say as I think she's Israel. I, I agree. I think Naomi is Israel. Yes. And you know, it's interesting. I don't know, just a side comment about the women. Yeah. I almost feel like they're being used like a Greek chorus. Mm-hmm. You know, where they are a ploy of the author to make a point. Yeah, and it's God talking. Mm. You know, it's in other words, it's like the Greek chorus that in the Greek plays, you know, that where the author is. I'm not as smart as you, so you're going to have to explain that to me. (laughs) It's not about me. Trust me, I don't know much about it, but what I do know is like the chorus is often used to be like the conscience Mm. of the characters. It's like another or, voice that's coming through to yeah. make an important point that they can't really they're, say from a character. They're not really people talking. Right. It's right. more of a group of people who are speaking the truth of whatever the author wants to speak. Yeah. 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 In the background. So, so I'm anyway. not, not saying there weren't women. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm sure there were women in yeah. the village. Yeah. yeah. And so that's where it's like the question that we are supposed to ask, I believe, coming out of Ruth is what is the role of God through all of these things? And like you said, you mm-hmm. hit on it in Ruth chapter two. I think Ruth chapter four, when you hold it to Ruth chapter one. Oh, yeah. Like, and, and Sturkey even mentioned when he preached Ruth three last week, he said the point of this story, and I'm doubling down on this when I preach on Sunday, the point of this story is not, hey, be like Ruth. It's like Ruth didn't necessarily do anything wrong in the story, but she seems kind of naive to me, honestly, in some ways. The point of the story is definitely don't be like Naomi. It's not be like Boaz. Boaz has his own flaws and does his own things that are wrong. It's like, no, no, it's what is God doing even though, even though humans are so flawed and broken and messed up, even though we turn ourselves into Maras, even though we become bitter, even though we Mm -hmm. are, essentially almost cursing the name of God like she does in Ruth chapter one. God still was working and providing not just for Naomi though. Right. But the genealogy at the end gives us the clue, you know, 
For Ruth Israel. gives yeah. Obed. Obed gives Jesse. Jesse gives David. All of Israel is centered on David. You know, the flag even today is the star of David. So it's just, and then Jesus comes from David. So mm-hmm. God is working even when humans have completely given up. That's interesting. To make what, his, and, and what do the women say to her? Uh, in verse, uh, I guess it'd be verse 14, 17. Says the neighborhood, the, uh, the neighbor women gave him a name, saying, "A son has been born to <laughs> Naomi." <laughs> right? Not, not Ruth. Not Ruth. Mm. Not Ruth. Yeah. So that kind of goes with our conspiracy theory there that Naomi's the main character of this whole thing. So anyway, that's kind of where I'm camping on Sunday. That's kind of what I'm looking at a whole lot and no, trying to good, tease that out. Is as you know, the courtroom scene is exciting and it's interesting, and there's the legal drama, and Boaz switches it on the guy halfway through the court case and makes him look like an idiot in front of the, all the elders, and all that's pretty fascinating to me. But I feel like the real meat of that text is in 13 through 17. That's where I that's where I got drawn to anyway, and was kind of was kind of camping out there looking at. That's really good. Looking at those things. And the other thing, too, this is another thing. And this is just another thought I had. There's two books of the Bible named after women, right? Mm -hmm. Ruth and Esther. And, uh, you know, God is... Like, like we already kind of talked about in this, in this podcast, God is fairly silent. He's not completely missing in the book of Ruth, but he's pretty silent. He's not, he's very subtle. Right. In Esther, he's completely missing. Mm-hmm. And these two books were both written during incredibly dark times in Israel's history. So one is in the book of Judges, and then Esther's written during a time of exile mm-hmm. when they're all... Which is the reason why his name's not in there. Right. More than likely is because this was written in that kingdom mm-hmm. with a king that would not have allowed his name to be in there. I hadn't heard that. That's interesting. Yeah, so it's, it could be kind of a subversive book. That's cool. Yeah. That's it. That's very interesting. But both of these stories are full of flawed characters. You know, Mordecai? You bet. Not the greatest, <laughs> not the greatest dude in the book of Esther. Uh-huh. Esther herself... It's kind of a conspiracy theory of mine personally. I mean, she's, I I don't necessarily think she's the best character all the time either. You know, winning a beauty contest, you know, sleeping with the king and winning. (laughs) That's the one way to look at that. We don't get a lot of great characters in the Bible. No, we don't. (laughs) We don't. It comes to just their own morality because that's not really the point. But should we though, Darren? Yeah. Should we? No. Because God moves. The whole point of the Bible is to, and the whole point of humanity in general is to bring glory to God. And if a human character walked in and did it perfectly, we would be bringing glory to that human. And we'd be saying, oh, look at this amazing, perfect person. Mm-hmm. And everybody, let's be like this person. And the only person we should be doing that with is Jesus Christ. And that's because he's God. You know, the yeah. whole thing is to bring glory to God. But, and that's yeah. a very different way than what I was raised with in church, I feel like, where we always had these Bible heroes that it's like, be like yeah. X, be like Y, be like David, be like Moses. Well, they're all murderers. You know, yeah. be like Saul. Well, he's a murderer. Be like Peter. He's no, you're, an idiot. You're be, like right. all these, be like all these people. And it's like, no, these are just humans that are messed up and screwed up just like you and me. And in fact, please don't ever base your life on me either because I've got sin in my life. You know, I'm a Ruth. I'm a Boaz. I'm a Naomi. Let's not try to base this on humanity at all. No, that's good. I I don't know how many sermons I've heard that, 
you know, just one moral point. Be like Joseph in this way. Be like. Yeah, Joseph was arrogant and bragged to his brothers all the time and told, like, there was a reason the other 11 brothers couldn't stand him. (laughs) Yeah. So it's just. It's it's also possible that he uh, gave in when it came to worshiping other gods, too. Oh, really? With being a pharaoh. Hmm. You know, and, and marrying pharaoh's. Daughters. Daughter and was there's it, a lot there. Yeah, there's a there's it's, a whole lot there. Not saying that he compromised entirely, but uh And yeah. how many Christians today, Darren, this this I I could get on a soapbox on this for a little while. How many Christians today are struggling with their faith because a human yeah. disappointed them or a human failed in some how way? How many people aren't Christians because of that? Yes. Yeah. When the Bible never advertised that. The Bible never advertised the perfection of humanity. In fact, the Bible advertises exactly the opposite. Yeah. Well, as Gandhi even said, I'm not a Christian because of Christians. Right. Well, yeah, but that's a faulty notion to begin with, like you said. Right. Because, you know, what are you you saying there? You're saying that that has to be true. Everyone has to be true, 100% in purity, in order for me to believe. That doesn't make sense because that's not the message Christianity is, which what you're saying. And if we look at the Old Testament— I mean, how how does does God have to hit us upside the head with this with this kind of theme? <laughs> right. We look at people like Moses, and then you look at you know the speech impediment. You look at Gideon. Oh, oh my gosh! Horribly messed up. Worships it, idols. We get him down to two hundred guys to yeah. win a battle. Right. What about? Uh, uh, what just goes on and on? Uh, oh, it's forever. Every uh, single Elisha person. with the. With the when they see the chariots around the walls of the city, the only, the only way the the only way the enemy ever went away was because of what God did. It wasn't because of yeah what any anybody did. I, f- I mean, I understand. So when Gandhi says something like that, what he's saying is, so Christianity is supposed to have this profound impact on your life. Mm-hmm. You're supposed to be loving. You're supposed to be joyful. You're supposed to have peace. Like that's the fruit of the Holy Spirit, right? Right. And so he knows a whole lot of people that are claiming to be Christians. They're claiming to be Jesus followers and they're not doing those things. And so he's saying proofs in the pudding. You have failed to show that Jesus can actually do these things in your life. Right. But it's faulty because it of is a couple faulty. reasons. One reason is even if he's talking about just the general that people are not being impacted like they said they would, therefore it's not true, then he's making a sweeping generalization because that would include yeah. everyone. And that's not true about everyone. <laughs> it may be true about a lot of people, but not everyone. And then number so two, there's true. an awful lot of people that are claiming Jesus that have no idea what grace actually even means. Yes. I, I've yeah. experienced a significant number of those growing up and some legalistic backgrounds and all these different things. So, I mean, I agree with you. I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm yeah. just playing devil's advocate for a half well, second. Well, secondly, here. probably what he didn't mean, but other people, what they mean by it is, is to me, is that they they have to see someone act like they're a Christian because for some reason they are directly affected by that yeah. in, in a way that leads them away from Jesus, which doesn't make sense to me at all. Right. Because uh, that's what does a person have to, we're not claiming to be Savior. Mm-hmm. We're, you know, we never were. Right. Well, you know, so. So anyway, so when, my stuff. encouragement, my encouragement to people as they're reading stories like Ruth, don't read the story and go, oh, what did Ruth do? How can I emulate her? How can I copy her? Instead, look analytically at it and say, for, exa- for example, Ruth, I, the whole gleaning scene blows my mind. And like Boaz is concerned that she's going to get assaulted. Naomi was concerned at one point that she's going to get assaulted. 
And the fact that she's even, I don't have time to get into this on Sunday, but the fact that Naomi even let her go out there to glean blows my mind because Boaz even says, you could have married anybody. You could have married a Moab. You could have stayed back in Moab and married a guy there. You could have married a younger man here once you got to Israel. So the only reason Ruth is even out there trying to get food is because she's attached to Naomi. And Naomi allows her to set herself up to possibly get raped in order to get food. Like the whole situation just seems so full of codependency and manipulation that it's kind of silly in my but opinion. But she finds the field of a man whose mother was a prostitute. Right. <laughs> and that's where God is in the story. Yeah. That's where that, God is in the but story. A foreigner. Right. Right. And so yeah. I just. He uh, received grace. So. Yes. And so that's where I, I encourage you when you're reading the Bible do not just say, how can I be like Ruth? How can I be like Boaz? How can I, but instead ask, where is God in this story? Where is God in this story? What can I learn about God because of this story? And then how can I apply those things into my life? Where is God in my life? My story. Yeah. My story. How has, what are, where are the parts like going back to what you preached about in Ruth too? It just so happened. How many just so happens have you had in your life, Darren? Yeah. Hundreds, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. Where you're looking back on it and you're going, oh, that's I don't recognize that's them God. all the time, but yeah. Yeah. So that's that's my urge to people listening to this podcast is just don't don't set the biblical characters up and make idols out of them. Instead, keep looking for God because God uses flawed people to do his story in order that he may get the glory. Yeah, that's awesome. Really good, Jonathan. Hey, thanks for having me on, man. I appreciate it. No, it's cool, and uh, we look forward to sermon on Sunday. And if, you, if you're listening to this, you've already probably heard the sermon, <laughs> but uh, I'm glad you tuned in for something a little bit deeper look at Ruth. And this concludes our four-week series. Ten and like a ten and like a ten.